Jerusalem is the beginning of the final judgment. It is the event that triggered the last day's clock, the end of time's clock. Jesus was speaking of this destruction. By the way, it would happen within 40 years, about 40 years from the time he spoke this. And to us, 40 years seems like a long time. If you're over 60, it seems like nothing. But if you're younger, it just seems like you're going to live forever. And, And, you know, you might, depending on what God has in store. But they're looking at 40 years and they're saying this is going to be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and they're, they're, they're concentrating on this, this event. He said, it's not the destruction of the temple that should be consuming your thoughts and energy. It, you're missing the point. It is your love and faithfulness to me that should be consuming you. Not the destruction of the temple. So we see here that Jesus is killing two birds with one stone, really. He is speaking to his disciples concerning the future events that will overtake Jerusalem in their lifetime. And he is also speaking of his return and glory following his death, resurrection, and his ascension. And his ascension, by the way, is very important because it sets the stage for his return. Now, we realize the ascension is key, and we know how important it really is. But for the most part, when we talk about the end times of Jesus Christ on earth, whether that we call that Resurrection Sunday or Easter, what we talk about is the suffering, death, and resurrection. Well, of course those three things are important. Equally important is when he ascended back into heaven. Because that is the only thing that could let the time clock Continue on. Now, Jesus touches on this when he's in the upper room. John 6, 28, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus touches upon four things in response to his apostles' questions. Number one, Jesus is prophesying his death, resurrection, and his return. Rather than giving the apostles the moment in time concerning the destruction of the temple, he was once again signaling his death and resurrection to them. And once again, he was, it was lost upon them, just like it would have been lost upon you and me. Now think a minute where these apostles are. Think where they are physically. Think where they are emotionally. Think of what's going on around them. What celebration is it? The Passover. There's over a million visitors that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It happens every year. Jesus has ridden into the temple. People have said, Hallelujah, we're glad you're here. Yeah, and well, whatever you want us to do, we will do. And of course, all that is beginning to crumble because that's not why Jesus was there at all. And so the apostles are a little bit clueless to this. But the first thing we notice is Jesus is prophesying his death and resurrection and his return in that scripture. The second thing we notice is he's telling them to stay faithful. He was cautioning them to stay faithful as they waited and prepared for the destruction that was to come. He says, see that you are not led astray. The third is a warning. Wolves will come in the last days. 
Deceivers and impostors will come, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Do not go after them. And the fourth thing we learn is this has universal meaning. These same words minister to us as we await Christ's return. Jesus is saying to us, see that you are not led astray as you wait for the tribulation. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And isn't this yet our problem today? We are just as short-sighted as the apostles were. We cannot look beyond or rise above our own fears or joys or disappointments or accomplishments or greed or lusts or pride. They nag at us. They stalk us. They are nipping at our heels. But probably more so than any of these things, we just cannot rise above the plans we have made for our own lives. We can't rise above our own plans to rejoice in God's plan for us. Easier done in the West or in what we would say civilized nations or countries or whatever. We have a lot of things at our disposal to distract us from the Word of God. Our lives are not our own. And God has already made plans for us. Jeremiah 29 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Proverbs 16 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 1 Timothy 6 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and what? We, can take no, we cannot take anything out of the world. So here's what I believe our problem is. I'm assuming you're interested in that because I'm going to keep going. That's what I believe our problem is. Truth be known, most of us are very comfortable staying right where we are. We're just really comfortable here. Even if we don't get everything we want, even if sometimes there's pain or disappointment or even sorrow or heartbreak, we would rather be here where we are. Now, some may say, no, that's not true at all because if you're over a certain age, you're not looking at so much coming forward as you did what's already behind you and there are health issues and we know that. But by and large, we know that most people want to stay where they are. We've grown accustomed to those things. This doesn't mean that everything is rosy in our world or that there are no challenges, but in general, life is okay to the point that we wouldn't mind putting off death for a while. Here's a thought that might be worth considering. Why does the flesh cling to this life? It's all the flesh has. It's all the flesh has is this life. Here's another thing I believe. Although we may be a believer and study the Word of God, we have not permitted the Word of God to actually live within us. You can read history books and it will change your perspective. It might even change your view of life. It might even change what you're going to do with your life. It might change how you invest your finances. It might change what you think about family or about God. But it can't change your life. No other word can change your life. And here's the sad part. And by the way, we're all guilty of this. 
You can study the Word of God and it never becomes a part of you. We have been wooed and romanced by our flesh to view heaven as a future home. Someplace to where we will travel and finally have victory. I've heard it time and again. I've said it time and again. We're saved. We look to heaven. And in between salvation and heaven is called sanctification. And it's where our flesh tries to catch up with our new identity. And it is a struggle. Reformed theology calls that the perseverance, perseverance of the saints. Persevering in sainthood. But we've been wooed by our flesh. And somehow we believe that we are traveling in a foreign land where there is no victory. There's been many songs. This place is not my home. By the way, this place is not my home. If you, have, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is really not home. Praise God, there's a better one. Not just a better one, there's a perfect one. But in the meantime, we're here. On one level, this is true. Heaven is where believers will be transported physically in God's timing. And where we will finally be freed from the flesh that still craves sin. Paul says it this way. There's nothing good that comes out of your flesh. Nothing good that comes out of your flesh. He said it's your enemy. It's dark. It's deceitful. It craves the things that God hates. And you can say, well, my flesh isn't quite that bad. Well, that's the first deception. But I have good news for you. We believers have already been spiritually raised from the dead. We are already there in heaven, in Christ. We're already gone. Any, any fan of the eagles in here? Will you admit it in church? Or... Okay, no, nobody, nobody likes the eagles here, but they all know this song. It's called Already Gone. I'm, all, I'm already gone. I'm feeling strong. I will sing my victory song. Now, they weren't writing that about Jesus, trust me. But there is truth in that. We're already gone. How do we know that? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am in Christ. He is in me. What? Together in God. Together in God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are seated in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Together in God. That's why we sing those songs. Ephesians 2, 4, 6 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our... Even when we stunk. When we stunk. We were so evil, there was nothing left within us that did not smell. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's really powerful. 
And then Jesus instructs us how we can have victory over our flesh once that takes place within us. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer, if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I am sealed with the Holy Spirit, seated in Christ Jesus, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Here's my point. According to the scripture we have just read and sang this morning, spiritually we are in Christ. Christ is in us and together with God is seated in the Holy Spirit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So we know that the word of God is alive and active. So above and beyond these things, here's Christ's second point to us. If I were not with you, if the Father had never sent me, You are without excuse because Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are without excuse. Now remember, this is all within the answer that Jesus gave the disciples and the apostles. It'll come together here. Number three, as a result, we are accountable. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And yet, on a daily basis, we typically choose earth and our flesh. How do we know this? How do we know we're doing this? How do you know that I'm doing this? How do I know that you're doing this? Without being judgmental, let me say this. It's pretty obvious. We continue to invest our fortunes, our time, and our talents, and that which will perish. That's how we know this. That's how we know we fall to this. So we learn this, Christ's warning to the apostles is just as critical, if not more so, for us as it was for them. Jerusalem has already been destroyed. We know that was not the tribulation. We know that it is still future. And his advice still stands true for us today. Be careful not to be led astray, for there will come people who say that they are me, Do not follow them. Can you name false prophets today? I can name a few. And by the way, the question asked by the apostles is still being asked today. When, Lord? When? When will the destruction come? Or more pointedly, when will the end times begin? When is the tribulation Jesus seems to be saying to his apostles and to us, you're missing the point. 
the real threat will not come through the tribulation or the tribulation. It will come as it always does from deceivers and imposters. Back to our scripture. Historically speaking, the prophecy Jesus spoke to his apostles concerning the counterfeit messiahs popping up. He says, be careful, don't be led astray, because people are going to come in my name. Between the time he said that and the destruction of the temple, Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, says this. At the time of Felix the governor, which we find him in Acts 23-24, the country of the Jews was filled with impostors who Felix had put to death every day. Every day someone was executed for claiming to be Jesus. Or they were breaking laws in that statement. Jesus goes on in verse 9, he says this in 21, uh, Luke 21, 9, And when you hear the, of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Do not be terrified. Have you ever read Revelation? Now listen, don't worry about it. Just get up, have your oats, your coffee, don't worry about it. Do not be terrified. Now, I'm old enough that I can remember certain things that people that were my age, oh, a few years ago, did not live through. And some of you that are close to my age or, or older or younger, whatever that may be, you're going to relate to this. One of the things I grew up fearing as a child in the 1960s was a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. As a little kid. I thought about nuclear war. And there were all kinds of things out there. I remember they had 8 millimeter films on what you should do. If you hear the air raid siren, it's called duck and cover. You duck onto your desk and you cover your head. Now, I later found out that was the equivalent of putting a baseball hat on just in case an anvil fell from the sky. It was a terrifying time. I grew up understanding nuclear fallout and acid rain. The destruction God will bring to this earth during the tribulation is cataclysmic in scope. So why should we not be terrified? Well, he tells us, as believers in Christ... There are three reasons we should not be fearful. The implication here is that the hope of Christ's audience that he was speaking to at the time is firmly grounded in their faith in him. And thus, they have full confidence that he is in control of all things. What he's saying is this. I'm in control of the end times. So don't be terrified. I'm the one in control. He's saying, for these things must first take place. He's saying there's going to be more than what you're understanding about Jerusalem and the temple. These things must first take place. For what reason? Why would they have to take place? So God's plan can continue on. This is all in God's hands. 
That's one of the reasons we should not be terrified. As believers, we should not be terrified. If you don't know the, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, feel free to be terrified. So A, as He's in control, B, as a result of our hope being in Christ, we firmly believe that He will take care of us, just as He always has during the end times. Matthew 28, 20, And behold, I am with you always. To what? The end of the age. Not the end of the world. The end of the age. The world will collapse, by the way. It will just, it will just utterly collapse. Stars, sun, moon, all, it will just collapse. So don't worry. I am behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Deuteronomy 31 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So the first reason is it's in God's hands. The second reason, we are in His hands. And here's the best reason of all we should not be terrified, even if it causes us to, us to suffer we will finally see Christ in His glory. See, that should be the most important thing to us, but it's difficult. Because why? Because we're still living in the flesh. And the flesh is fragile, and it's scared stiff. It's scared to death. All it has is oxygen. And our flesh craves eternal life. We will finally see the glorification of Jesus Christ. Revelation nineteen eleven through 16 says this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, meaning crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Not of gold, dipped in blood. That's his trophy, the blood. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Will this not be glorious? Will this not be overwhelming? Perhaps for the first time in the history of humankind, we will not be consumed with ourselves. Our senses will be an overload because of what we see and hear and feel. This might be a good time to remember what the most important thing to God is. The most important thing to God is His Glory. The most important thing to God is His glory, and He is glorified when you receive Jesus Christ.
And by the way, for believers at that moment, that will be the most important thing to us as well, is His glory. I want to read to you again the verses from this morning. We're closing in just a couple minutes here. Teacher, when will these things be? When will the destruction come? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You know, men, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars, and we would say rumors of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, and here's the implication, so I can receive my glory. But the end will not be at once. And he said to them this, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I believe this describes something that is particularly troubling. We are accustomed as America to marching into battle against or in tandem with other nations. However, we are not at all accustomed to marching into battle against one another. If and when we are called to take up arms against one another, it will be an entirely different ballgame. I can't hate my brother. I can't hate my relatives. War is dependent upon hatred. Jesus is plainly declaring that there will be wars between nations and there will be wars within nations. And by the way, history reveals that from the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden until now. This world has experienced wars exponentially rising per era from the time of the fall in the Garden. This last era, there were more wars on earth than any other time on earth. But he says, do not be terrified. For these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Hundreds of thousands, millions upon millions have died throughout history as a result of these wars. Do not be terrified. However, the wars leading up to and including the Battle of Armageddon will dwarf every other human conflict in history. And if you are here to see that, feel free to be terrified. It's the last war. From the fall of Adam until now, the world has been dying. And the world will continue to die until God creates His new world. Can I say something about environmentalists? I think they're right. I think they're right. The world's dying. But we can't fix it. Why? It's God's plan. As soon as Adam sinned, the world fell and it has been decaying ever since.
You know, we're deceived. The world speaks of evolution and the progress of man. I don't believe we're evolving. I believe we're devolving. But here's the great deception. The world of electronics has convinced us that we are the most advanced and enlightened generation in history. Take away our electronics and some would be hard-pressed to function at the most basic level of mathematics or be able to get from St. Louis to Milwaukee. For some, the environment has become the most important crisis for humanity to the point that those who are living are quite willing to prevent others from being born. That's wrong. Even if you're right about the environment. You don't sacrifice life so you can live. So family, we're not going to be able to save the world. And the reason is because God's going to destroy it. Jesus is not returning to save the world. He's returning to redeem His children. He is returning to receive His glory. He is returning to rule over the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. He is returning to judge the living and the dead. That's why He's returning. The sky will collapse. The earth will be destroyed. There will be new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? See to it that you're not led astray. That's the important thing. You have no control over when these things are going to happen and how they're going to happen. But be sure you're not led astray. May I offer you one more scripture as we close? Luke twelve thirty-two. It's one of my favorite scriptures. King James Version, which I don't use very often, but I think this is the best version. Fear not, little flock, what? For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's another kingdom coming. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ, you have every reason to fear the end times, because the end times are indeed the end of it all. The decision you make here will affect where you, where you live out your eternity, by the way. So the question is, do you know Jesus? The question isn't, do we know when this will happen? The question is, do you know Jesus? And if you do not, let me explain this to you. There is only one Messiah... His name is Jesus. He's from God, His only Son. He was born of a virgin. As impossible as that is to believe, it's only impossible because we're seeing it from this view. It's not impossible for heaven, you know that. Born of a virgin. He's crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the dead. He came back and ministered to primarily His apostles. And then He ascended, which means He returned to heaven. And every day is one step closer to his return. 
This is the Jesus we worship here. This is the Jesus that can save you. No other Jesus, no other Messiah, no other preacher. It doesn't matter. What must I do to be saved? You have to come to the realization this can only happen if God calls you there. You have to come to the realization that Jesus is who He says He is. And that you just can't, you can't measure up. And so because of that, you say, Lord Jesus, I receive you now. That is salvation. And then Jesus sets you on a path of challenges and growth and victories. And then we can anticipate with great certainty and joy the glorification of Jesus Christ. We invite you to do that. If you'd like to speak afterwards, I would love to talk with you. If you'd like to have prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Father God, we are in just in awe. We are in awe of the choices that you have made for our sake. And we are in awe of the choices you continue to make for our sake. God, we are in awe that you sent your Son who had never tasted sin to die on a cross and take the sin of the world. Every single sin that has ever been committed or thought. And you piled those sins upon him. And then you turned your face away. We are in awe of those things. God, we love you, and we praise you, and we give you the glory for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Blessings.